Hi, my name is Morgan Maitland, and this is the King and Kingdom podcast, where we study the Bible to know the King and seek first His kingdom. In this series, we focus on understanding the Old Testament. Charles Spurgeon writes this, Man is a fallen star till he's right with heaven. He's out of order with himself and everything around him until he occupies his true place in relationship to God. Where did everything go wrong? How do you get from the very good at the end of Genesis 1, the celebration of marriage at the end of Genesis 2, So this recent headline I read in the New York Post on November 17th, 2022, said this, two-year-old boy starves to death after dad died of a heart condition. Oh, it's tragic. How do we go from good to bad, from joy to mourning, from life to death? What happened to everything? Why is the world so wrong, so broken? Why do bad things happen? The answer is in Genesis chapter 3, in the original sin. For these next two sections of the story, we're going to cover two cataclysmic events. Uh, The two events are the fall and the flood. The fall and the flood. That's going to get us from Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis chapter 10 the fall and the flood. And in these two events, we see this pattern, S-J-R-P. That acronym stands for this, sin, judgment, redemption, and promise. That is a common biblical pattern. In fact, I'd say it's a gospel pattern. If you want to know how to share the gospel with someone, follow that acronym. First, sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the Romans road, by the way, Romans 3.23. J, judgment. The wages of sin is death. That's the judgment, Romans 6.23. Then you have redemption. Romans 3.24 through 25 says, All are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And finally, promise. Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise. So SJRP, sin, judgment, redemption, and promise. This pattern is in both of these events, the fall and the flood. In this episode, we're just going to focus on the fall. In the next, we're going to look at the flood. So let's start with the fall. The fall takes place in Genesis chapter And we're just going to go in the order of the pattern. First, let's talk about the S, sin. The sin in the fall was when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Now, you remember that God gave man everything he needed, right? Design, purpose. He he receives a perfect partner in the the woman and enjoys perfect relationship with God. All the resources of the garden are, are, are available except one. There's only one exception. God forbids them from eating of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's in Genesis 2.17. 
Now, you might ask, why would God plant a tree in a garden and then forbid people to eat its fruit? Seems kind of like a trick or, or, or a trap, right? I, I like how James Montgomery Boyce writes it. He explains it this way. He says, the fruit symbolizes the fact that although the man and woman had maximum freedom and dominion in the earth, they were nevertheless God's creatures. And they enjoyed their freedom as a result of God's gift. So the, ref, so the fruit was a restraint on them. It was to remind them that they were not autonomous. They were not God. They were responsible to him. So, like I said in the beginning, to defy God's rule, to defy his order or his design, is to defy him as king. It is royal rebellion. So the original sin in the garden shows us uh, not just the origin of sin, but the nature of it. It is rebellion. Sin's not an accident. It's not a little mistake. The serpent, who we know as Satan, he enters the garden. He tempts Eve. And he tempts Eve first to doubt God's word. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You know, all sin starts with these kinds of doubting questions. Is God really good? Is his way really the best way? Can I trust God? These questions are, are sown in our hearts uh, to produce the fruit of doubt. And doubt is the antithesis of faith. It's the opposite of how we're supposed to re relate to God. And so it starts with doubt. And then doubt has a very ugly sister. And her name is pride. Doubt and pride go hand in hand. Because when you doubt God's way as good, you'll inevitably turn to your way as better. And that's how Satan continues the temptation in the garden. So first to doubt God's word, next to consider what it would be like to be like God. He says, God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Oh, don't you want to be like God? God, he suggests. Don't you want to sit in his seat? Don't you want to make the rules? Don't you want to do it your way? This is, by the way, how Satan himself fell from heaven. He was a perfect angel created to worship God and glorify him, but he desired to be like God, to take his place, and to become supreme. It was pride. And pride is at the root of every sin. Every sin you commit finds its root in pride, doubt and pride together. You think to yourself, my way is better than his way. I'm right and he's wrong. I know how to make myself happy, so I'm going to make the decision that I want to make. And that's exactly what Eve does. The first human to sin in the garden was Eve when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, like God, she thought. She took of its fruit, and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband, that's Adam, and he ate the fruit. See, Adam and Eve didn't stumble into sin. They didn't accidentally fall into this trap. They doubted God's care for them, and they pridefully wanted to take his place. It was royal rebellion. And the same is with you, by the way. From childhood, when you willfully touched the light socket right after your parents told you not to, 
or when you were a teenager and you pushed back against the boundaries set by authority or even into adulthood when you willfully hold on to sinful vices and idols that leave you empty and bitter and wanting see we're all rebels we're all a part of this royal rebellion and Romans 5 explains it that it's because the one man's sin Adam has been passed down to all men this is the doctrine of original sin because Adam sinned, we all sin, and because of our sin, the result is death. So we are like mosquitoes carrying a virus. We're all infected, and we all go around and infect others. We're not victims of sin. We're perpetrators and proliferators. And the result of our sin is death. That leads us to judgment. So we have the sin, the eating of the fruit in the garden. The J, the judgment, is the curse. Now, uh, before we get to the curses, I just want you to feel the visceral responses that Adam and Eve have when they sin. The visceral, immediate responses. Their eyes are opened, and they knew that they were naked. They were ashamed, and they hid. Can you imagine I'd like to put myself in the scene to try to imagine or think about what Adam and Eve thought when their eyes were opened. What did they see? Matthew Henry, a biblical commentator, he speculates and, and he writes this, and I think it's, it's, it's well written and, and is a good guess as to what they felt, the gravity of it. It says, now when it was too late, they saw the folly of eating forbidden fruit. They saw happiness they had fallen from, misery they had fallen into, a loving God provoked, his grace and favor forfeited, his likeness and image lost, dominion gone. They saw their natures corrupted and depraved. They felt a disorder in their own spirits, which they've never before been conscious. They saw a law in their members warring against the law of their minds captivating them both to sin and wrath. They saw as Balaam did when his eyes were opened in Numbers 22. The angel of the Lord was standing in their way and his sword was drawn. They saw themselves disrobed of their ornaments and in signs of honor. They were degraded from their dignity, disgraced in the highest degree, laid open to contempt and the reproach of heaven and earth. Oh man, the guilt. The shame, the fear that immediately follows sin. You know this too. You know this personally and experientially. When you sin, you feel that same guilt, that same shame, the same fear. And the natural response when we sin is to hide, to cover it up, to lie and blame shift. And we see Adam and Eve do all these things in Genesis 3. Then God steps into the garden. He calls for the man. He holds him primarily responsible for all that's happened. And he delivers curses, judgment. In the same sequence that the sin was committed first, the origin, Satan, or the serpent, the tempter. He tells the serpent that he will be a beast cursed on his belly, cursed among livestock, and that's true to this day. I, I mean, some people like snakes, but most people fear them, loathe them, hate them, try to kill them. They're a cursed beast. And God or God dishes a curse beyond the serpent to the dark angel behind him, and that's Satan. He says, your doom is sealed. The offspring of the woman is going to destroy you. Now, we'll come back to that. 
in, in a little bit. But then he moves to the woman. This is the second sinner. Uh, you know, you can think about the second sinner in the garden. And her curse is pain and childbirth. So think about this, the very process that would produce the greatest blessings in life, the, greatest, the, the very process that they would uh, be able to fulfill their human mandate to multiply and fill the earth, that process would be painful, most painful. And in addition to that, a desire, she will have a desire that is contrary to her husband. There would be a desire to usurp his role as leader. So already there's going to be problems in the marriage because of sin. And finally, Adam gets curses. The whole earth is cursed under Adam, uh, producing thorns and thistles. So labor is going to be difficult. Survival and work will be hard, not no longer uh, fulfilling, satisfying, easy. Uh, finally, the consequence that God promised in chapter 2. Here's the big doozy. He says, you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The wages of sin is death. That's the ultimate consequence of the curse. Sin produces death. That's ultimate judgment. And this is theologically important. Remember, because of the one man's sin, all men sin, that's you and I, and therefore death spread to all men. We will all die as a result of the sin. So the world as we know it went from very good to very bad in this sequence of events. Whose fault is it? Who can we blame? Can we point the finger at Adam and Eve? The root problem of this world is sin, and it does go back to the sin of Adam and Eve. But we're all sinners too. We're responsible for our own sin. Think about the scope of this. All the disasters, all the disease, destruction, all the toil, all the trouble, all the torture, all mass genocide, all pandemics, all shootings, all domestic violence, all racism, all war, every abortion, every miscarriage finds its root in Genesis 3 in the sin of men. So the big problem in this world is not overpopulation or underpopulation. It's not climate change. It's not a virus. It's sinful men and women like you and me. And all of creation groans for a solution, someone that can reverse the curse. Praise God, he provides redemption. There's the R that we've been looking forward to. So we have sin eating the fruit. The judgment was the curse, specifically death. And third, we have redemption. Redemption is provided through the coverings. God's grace quickly follows his judgment. This incredible little verse, Genesis 3.21, it says, The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. God gave them a gift after he gave them these curses. It's a striking act of grace, of covering, covering up the shame of their nakedness. And I want you to think further about this. How did God get those animal skins? Well, the animals must have been sacrificed, killed, so that they can be provided. This is a little foreshadow of atonement. 
how our sins can be forgiven and covered up. Leviticus 17 says that blood must be spilled in order to make atonement to forgive us of sin. In other words, for your sins to be forgiven, someone has to die in your place. In in this little case, a little foreshadow, right after the original sin, God provides a way, a little picture of redemption by shedding the blood of an innocent animal to cover the shame of man. Does this sound familiar? Like I said in the introduction, the Old Testament leads us to Jesus, right? And so we see a little glimpse of him here. It builds a case for how Jesus becomes our perfect sacrifice. His blood, innocent blood, would be shed to atone for our sins. So even amidst the most direct and consequential rebellion in human history, here we find a significant theme in our story. God redeems sinners. God is gracious. He makes the payment, the sacrifice, and he provides a way for our sins to be covered. God is a redeemer, and that's good news. And the redemption leads us to finally the P, S-J-R-P, promise. Just a quick review. The sin was eating the forbidden fruit. Judgment was the curse. Redemption was provided through the animal sacrifice and coverings. The promise is the proto-evangelium, the promised offspring, the good news of the gospel, the promised offspring will crush Satan and reverse the curse. This promise strikes in the middle of the curses. It's like a lightning bolt that strikes the ground. It's why Adam immediately names his wife Eve after God dishes the curses. Eve is the mother of all living because Adam had great expectations for Eve's offspring. Look at Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity, God says, between you and the woman. That's Satan and the woman. And between your offspring, Satan's offspring, and her offspring, the woman's offspring. He, that's the woman's offspring, shall bruise your head, Satan's head. And you, Satan, shall bruise the woman's offspring's heel. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God declares war, and he declares the end of the war. First of all, the war would be between the powers of darkness and the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, mankind. It's interesting to note here, by the way, that Neither Satan nor the woman have seed. This is supernatural generation. Um, again, referring to the, the spiritual forces of darkness and mankind just kind of in general. Um, but more specifically now, there's a specific fulfillment of this offspring promise through the woman. We know that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin woman. That's Mary. He was born of the Holy Spirit without the seed of man. So Jesus Christ's virgin birth fits the model given in Genesis 3.15, the offspring of the woman. And then listen to this promise. The seed of the woman will bruise the head of Satan, while Satan will bruise the heel of the seed. That word for bruise is a violent word. 
Exodus 32, it's, is, it's used in that passage when Moses ground the golden calf into powder. So bruising is not just leaving a mark. It is demolition. Now, if you have your heel demolished, let's say in some weird way you got a, you know, a tractor rolled over your heel. That would hurt a lot, and you might need corrective surgery. But it's not a crushing blow. You're not going to die. It's not going to totally demolish you. Now, if your head is under that tractor wheel, that ends everything. Demolishing the head is a crushing blow. So, get this, the seed of the woman, he will be struck and hurt, but he's not going to be ended. Satan, on the other hand, will be struck and forever destroyed. This is a promise for a hero. A hero that will destroy Satan and reverse the curse. It's the first light of hope that the rest of Scripture is going to brighten. The first gospel, the Proto-Evangelium. It's a picture and a and a a lead into the main character of our story, the central theme. God's big plan has not failed. It will continue to unfold, and this promise will be fulfilled in a person. Who is this person? When will he come, and how is he going to do it? These questions push us forward into the story and make us turn the page with anticipation, looking forward to the one who would reverse the curse and make all wrongs right. So there we have the first event, the fall. SJRP, sin, judgment, redemption, promise. The sin was eating the forbidden fruit. The judgment, curse and death. Redemption, God provides covering through sacrifice. And the promise was that the seed of the woman will destroy the works of Satan and reverse the curse. So next time we're going to look at the second event, the flood. And we're going to see a similar pattern how God's plan will continue to unfold for the king and his kingdom. Hey, listen, I want to give credit where credit is due. There are three resources outside of Scripture that have influenced this content. And the first resource is called The Training Center at Faith Bible Church in Marietta. The general outline of my material was taught to me in a church-based training program by my pastor, Chris Mueller. I'd encourage you to check out their material on their podcast called Train the Church with Chris Mueller, John Plesnick, and Nigel Shaler. The second resource is a book called Old Testament Theology by Paul R. House. This book helped me to look behind the events and see the theological themes and movements of the Old Testament. It helps you to not just see the Old Testament as a collection of non-fictional stories, but as a movement of God for the glory of God and the good of his people. And finally, the three the third resource is called is a book called He Will Reign Forever: A Biblical Theology of the Kingdom of God by Michael Vlock. Dr. Vlock was my Theology 3 and 4 professor at Master's Seminary. He helped me to see the unified theme of Scripture. He showed me that the Bible is a story about God, the King, who establishes his kingdom forever. In fact, I remember the first class with Dr. Vlock. I was sitting there, and he was tracing the kingdom theme from Genesis 
to Revelation, he spent about 10 minutes showing us in Scripture uh, the theme throughout. And I remember at the end of that time, I was literally in tears. It was amazing to see this unified theme throughout Scripture. And so these three resources have influenced me tremendously and were really valuable in creating the content for this podcast. I'm thankful for all these men who have mentored me personally, who have taught me and helped me to know the King and seek first His kingdom.